Welcome to Inspiring Women with Lori McGraw. I am your host, Lori McGraw. I have spent the past 30 years in leadership, and over the years, I've come to learn one thing. Women need women, and not just any women, but inspiring women. Tune in every week to hear from women at the pinnacle of their careers and from others who are just starting out. Episodes can be found at inspiringwomen.show or subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening, and I hope you will be inspired. In this episode of Inspiring Women, we are speaking to Bettina Hine. Bettina is a serial software entrepreneur that has built several technology companies in both Europe and the United States. She's most recently the founder of a digital health startup called Julie, which manages chronic care conditions for patients. She previously founded Pixability, which was a video advertising company in Boston. And before that, she co-founded Sbox, which was a Swiss-based speech technology company, which she then sold to Nuance Communication for $125 million. Bettina's received numerous awards for her entrepreneurship, for her leadership. She was named the Immigrant Entrepreneur of the Year. She was the World Economic Forum Young Global Leader, Boston Journal's 40 Under 40, and many more. Bettina has a master's degree from MIT, a law degree from the University of Constance, and a business degree from the University of St. Gallen. And Bettina, she has software patents. She's a recognized speaker. And interestingly, she's also a shark on the Swiss version of Shark Tank. And Bettina, I am really excited to be talking to you today. Thank you for having me on, Lori. It's really great to speak to you today. Well, as we get started with Inspiring Women, I always like to start with, what are you doing right now in your professional career? What do you do? Right now, I am working on a digital health startup called Julie. I'm the founder and CEO, and yeah, I get to do all the fun stuff of founding a company, finding co-founders, finding uh, our employees, and I've been at this since last March, so I have a total pandemic company. I've never seen any of the employees in person. Um, two of our co-founders have never met in person, so it's it's a really interesting time for me, a really interesting time to work on chronic conditions. I'm also the mom of, of two kids that always have new things going on. So that's also happening in my life. So that sounds very busy. So, you know, a lot of the storied lines for starting companies, it all sounds very romantic and fun. But I think we also know that it's an enormous amount of work that you started your now third company in the at the height of the pandemic. I want to talk a little bit about that. But let's start with how did you get here? So Bettina, you, you know, you have the law school, MIT, business degrees, and then several different companies. What's the trajectory? How did you sort of, you know, land onto serial entrepreneurship? So I come from a family of small entrepreneurs, small-time entrepreneurs, both of my grandmothers and both of my grandfathers were entrepreneurs in their own right. And also my parents are health professionals. Uh, my, my dad is an anesthesiologist. My mom is a pharmacist and they always worked for themselves. So I, growing up, I did not know a nine to five lifestyle. It was just 
the business was part of the fabric of your life. So when I went to college, I thought that I should probably take, you know, the route of working for a, a corporation and climbing that ladder, getting experience, and maybe later becoming an entrepreneur once I had experience. But my boyfriend at the time and now husband said, you can do this. You can start a company. And I didn't have the self-confidence, but he really, really supported me in that. And so I just founded my first company right out of grad school with two engineers from the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology and Zurich. And uh, we were off to the races. And as you say, it was not easy. It does sound romantic, but it's a very hard road. It is a hard road. And so, you know, building from the ground up and taking a concept and turning it into a successful company um, launch. I mean, usually these are 24 seven types of scrappy operations. And so from your family beginning, you had people to look at who were doing things similar to that. But the word entrepreneur is something we use all the time today. I don't think that was the term back when um, you were starting out. So some questions that I have are, you know, how do you know when to move to the next thing. You've done three companies. You've had successful exits um, from the first two. How do you determine when to move to the next thing? They're not all in healthcare. So you've also changed fields as well. Well, I really love learning new stuff, as you can probably tell from my um, <laughs> degree collecting. I'm actually working right now on a master's of science in computer science. Where I'm a yes, you need you need more education. That's exactly what I was thinking. <laughs> yeah, everybody teases me about that to no end. But yeah, I, I just have a really curious mind and I want to learn new things. So when you start a company, you have to be passionate about aspects of it. You know, some of them may not be an extreme fit for everything that you do, but there have to be these elements of passion around it. And the companies that I found have a certain recipe to them. I found venture capital financed, scalable, high growth technology companies. And those are created essentially to be sold or to exit on, on the public market, which means that there is sort of an inherent boundary to what you're doing. It's not a family company that stays in the family for 150 years. So for me personally, the time to move on from companies was, well, there were personal situations, right? I, my husband wanted to go to the US when I stopped working on SVOX. So we moved to Massachusetts to uh, both do a program at MIT, get our master's uh, there. And the second one, actually, we wanted to go back. My husband wanted to go back home after 12 years in the US so that our children could go to school in, in Switzerland and be closer to their six cousins. So there were, like, there were personal things, but also once a company is has scaled to a certain size and is profitable, I think it's okay to 
move on. But I tell young entrepreneurs, you have to think about doing this for a decade. So is this area, is this idea worth a decade of your life? If not, you probably shouldn't embark on it. Because it takes that that much work and endurance um, to you know move a company forward. I also wanted to talk to you about uh, Bettina, just you know being a woman as an entrepreneur. So you're not coming in as one of the first employees of a company. You are the founder of the company. You are the CEO of the company. And so, do you see differences being a female. The statistics and the studies show that there are far fewer women in those types of positions. There are There's far less money um, that is being given to female entrepreneurs and founders. What are you seeing? What is your experience? Yeah, I mean, there's <laughs> the statistics show it, as you say, less than 5% of all venture capital financed companies have a female CEO. That's already a stat in itself. It's also there's statistics that female CEOs have a harder time finding co-founders because people just don't have as, as much confidence in them. There's also research that if the same pitch is given by a female voice versus a male voice, everything else is the same, the women are less likely to get buy-in from investors. So yeah, you face there, <laughs> the odds aren't great, but that hasn't kept me from doing other things. I do things against the odds all the time. Many people have disadvantages um, in creating companies. You know, they may have a really strong accent, their skin color may be not what is seen. They may have a, a disability that you know creates bias among people. So being female is just another one of those. And I feel that I was able to do some jujitsu moves around that. For example, I raised funding twice while pregnant. And um, the first time I really tried to wear these big blazers that hid my, my bump because I was just thinking, oh God, what are, you know, are people going to invest? They did. I raised, successfully raised funding, but I also had to endure some, some questions around, you know, how committed am I going to be to the company once I have a baby, la, 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 just stuff, totally, I don't know, unfair things. But the second time around, the company had grown and I had another round of investment and I just, I used it to my advantage. I pointed to my belly and said, look, if you invest before I, I pop, you'll get a discount. Otherwise, it's going up the price. <laughs> <laughs> and it worked. It really worked because there, there was sort of this inherent deadline and yeah, the, the sense of the sense of urgency and yeah, I, <laughs> I I did it. And so, you know, there's there are other things like you go to a conference and there are 500 men, three other women and you and the three women are people, you know, the marketing person or the person that's the event manager. So, of course, you're going to stick out. 
but isn't that great? You get to stick out and uh, you can be memorable. You know, I also have a name that's not so, so common in the US. So when people, you know, see me with my coral colored blazer in the sea of black suits, awesome. People will want to talk to me because I'm, I'm standing out. So, you know, those are things that you can use. And I think every entrepreneur can find those kinds of things that will turn a disadvantage into an advantage. You just have to think about it enough. You know, women can do that, but other entrepreneurs can also find these little things to help them along. So I really appreciate those stories, you know, in terms of how you experienced um, some of those, what the statistics actually support in terms of the, uh, you, we can call it uniqueness, but, you know, more, more often than not, you know, the barriers, the questions that perhaps are a bit tone deaf in terms of, you know, um, pregnancy. I'm glad to know that pregnancy is the new tool to get to funding. So that's a <laughs> good tip, good tip for women founders um, out, out there. Um, and I also, I've read about you that you are a grammar fanatic and pronunciation fanatic. So uh, I'll admit <laughs> that was also a very interesting tidbit about you. But you know, you also um, are on Shark Tank. So I mean, this is just wild um, to me. So I think in the United States, we're all familiar with Shark Tank and Mark Cuban and all of these fantastic investments. First of all, that is like incredibly cool. Tell us a little bit about what Shark Tank in Switzerland um, is all about. How did you become one of the judges on that show? What do you see there? It was total coincidence. I was on a night train from Zurich back to my town of St. Gallen here, and somebody got in that was a friend of the person that I was in the train with, and he told me that they're starting this show and they're looking for lions as we're called in Switzerland, it's called lion's den, not shark tank. And being an entrepreneur, when in doubt, you always say yes, right? So he asked me, should I, do you want to talk to them? And I was like, mm, not sure. Okay, I'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> you have to know that I can absolutely not watch shark tank. As an entrepreneur, I always want to scream at the TV and tell the entrepreneurs, don't do it. Don't give away your company for so little money. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, it was weird. I was a little conflicted. I also thought, you know, I'm not, I'm not a TV person. I'm not an actor. I can't, I don't know if I can do this. But lo and behold, three weeks later, I had this part um, to be one of the sharks on Swiss Shark Tank. What you have to know about that is that Shark Tank is actually an internationally licensed format by Sony. It started in Japan where it flopped. Then it went to the UK um, where it's called Dragon's Den and it was super successful. Went to the US, Shark Tank, also really successful. And since then, there are about 30 countries in the world that have this format. Um, and Switzerland started three years ago. We just finished taping the third season. And it's really cool. I mean, I like my co-stars on the jury there. And the reason I like it is I've always been promoting entrepreneurship. I'm not just an entrepreneur, but I try to pull other people into this line of work. And this is a way to educate the broad public about what it's like to pitch for investment and that if Joe or Jane 
on Shark Tank can do it, people can think, well, I could do it too. Well, you are a TV personality now. And so in terms of all these different pitches that you see, what makes a successful pitch in terms of what you've seen? I mean, you know how to do a successful pitch as you're as being an entrepreneur yourself. Um, what do you what do you look for when you're evaluating others um, on the other side of the TV aisle? There are a couple of things that we always look for. The first one is, is the entrepreneur really committed? Some people do this on the side, you know, they have a secure job and they want money to get out of that secure job. That's often not something that we would want to do. We look for founders that have already given up their day job and are really in it completely. Second thing that we look for is, has that person been able to attract co-founders. So do they have a team around them that is doing this? Third thing is, what's the market that they are addressing? Is that large enough? Because if you address only a niche market, you don't have much room for mistakes. If your market is big enough, you can pivot your company within that space a couple of times and you will find some sort of slice of that market where someone will pay you. Other things are, is it scalable? And what are the economics of it? What are the the gross margins? How do you acquire customers? All of those things. Oftentimes at the end though, there's this gut feeling that you have about the entrepreneurial team. Like, can they do it? And also, do you gel with them? Because if you invest at this early stages that these companies are at, you're going to be with them for six, seven, eight, nine, ten years. And you know, if the personalities, the chemistry isn't there, it's going to be hard. Well, Bettina, in terms of just the outline for what makes a successful pitch, it's the same one that's the recipe that you use for building your own companies, as well as how you talked about the things that are important to you when you're pitching yourself. So very, very interesting. And that is great advice. This has been a great conversation and you know, I wish we had more time. But as we close out here, I'd love to hear a little bit about like what's the best advice you've ever received and what did you do with it to build your successful career? I think one of the the pieces of advice was for me that if you found a company, you have to be in it for a decade. I think that that when I started out my first company, I was, you know, 26, 27. And I thought, well, I, you know, I'm going to do this. And in three years, this is going to be super successful. Well, I got the advice from my grandmother who had started her own corner store. And she said, you know, the first three or four years are really hard till you establish yourself. And, you know, that's, that's gonna be tough on you. And, you know, being a good granddaughter, I said, yes, yes, grandma. Mm-hmm. But in my head, I was like, you had a corner store. I'm doing the scalable software company. Uh, I, this is totally different. Lo and behold, I went to work for five years every day thinking, why the hell does the baker make money? Why the hell does the dry cleaner make money? And I cannot, for the life of me, figure out how to get people to pay me for this software. And so I I actually 
went to my grandmother and I said, you know, I didn't quite believe you when you said this, but you were so right. So my advice is listen to your grandmother. She's almost always right. <laughs> that is that is fantastic advice. I think we'll close out with that. This has been an excellent, inspiring women conversation with Bettina Hine. Bettina, I really appreciate talking with you today. Thank you so much. Thank you, Lori. This was fun. This has been an episode of Inspiring Women with Lori McGraw. Please subscribe, rate, and review. We are produced by Kate Cruz at Executive Podcast Solutions. More episodes can be found on inspiringwomen.show. I am Lori McGraw, and thank you for listening.